purple rain. And I remember the brother said, can you give us a fatwa? So I went to my sheikh of fiqh and I said to him, we need a fatwa on this drug. And he said, what is the name? And I said, Torah um, al-Malaika, like angel dust. And he said, hot, let me have some of this. Then I described to him what PCP does to the individual. You take the PCP in your body and they strip off their clothes and they run down the street and, and they don't know what hit them till the next day. He said, no, this is a, 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 a khamar and this is haram. Cocaine, which is a famous drug on the street, it's called candy or snow. So somebody might walk up to you and said, would you like some candy? You're not talking about uh, Snickers bars or chocolate. You may be talking about cocaine. Crack cocaine, which is a cheap form of cocaine, is called tornado. And heroin, which is a very dangerous uh, substance um, in itself, a, a well-known street drug, is called brown sugar. There is also, of course, the marijuana. And marijuana is, is, has become a, a big test for our young generation because it has been made permissible by the society itself. And there are literally cannabis stores that are opening up along the streets. And one might say, okay, cannabis in itself uh, is a drug, but what about alcohol? Because the alcohol, the shops have been opened up uh, uh, for years in our society. And even during the COVID-19, um, the alcohol shops uh, were actually considered to be essential for Canadian society. And so they remained open. But what about cannabis shops, which are now opening up? Again, something that's going to lead you all the way into something haram, according to a sulat fiqh, it's haram in itself. And marijuana, even though somebody may prescribe this to you as a means of a, a psychological easing of pain, uh, if it leads you, because how it is used, the street culture surrounding the smoking of marijuana, the social life that's connected to it, the other drugs like hashish and opium that marijuana can lead you to would make it haram in itself, even if they call it Mary Jane. <laughs> so Mary Jane is a, is a nice sounding Canadian name, but that could be leading you to hellfires. MDMA, which is a dangerous drug, it was called ecstasy. And this drove people crazy when they went to the nightclubs and the discotheques and taking this, this drugs, even though ecstasy mm -hmm. people, young people want ecstasy in their life. Mm -hmm. But this is a dangerous drug. The uh, methadrines, the amphetamines, these drugs, it was called speed. And, and people, young people have need for speed. And, and, and they want to always do things fast. This is the generation of, of getting everything done fast. It's snapshot. It's, it's, it's do everything fast. But methadrine is a dangerous drug and speed. When a person is on meth, they have one of the most dangerous forms of addiction that is known to mankind. And so regardless of the speed 
avoid these drugs. Fentanyl, which is a big street now, a street drug, which is widespread throughout a society. They call it Apache, or they call it dance fever, or they call it jackpot. And so they're given fentanyl these different names, and the drug cartels are actually producing fentanyl in Mexico and in other countries the same way they produce cocaine because it's outstripping even cocaine and crack in some parts uh, of the streets. We have it heavily in Vancouver. Of course, in the United States, it's reached Toronto and Montreal. You will find it uh, on, on the streets. Now, we have to recognize the fact when we're dealing with drugs that there are, there are reasons and there are times when drugs can be of benefit, especially during operations. When your tooth uh, is being extracted, then you need to take some drugs to ease the pain, to take away that feeling. When you're having an operation, you need to take the drugs. And that is permissible because of the necessity of the operation itself. But that does not mean that you, because you like that feeling and the next week or the next month and you felt depressed, you wanted that same soft feeling uh, that the drugs gave you in the dentist's office. This is a different situation. And so there is a use for drugs medicinally and it needs to be prescribed by a doctor, preferably a Muslim doctor or a doctor who is sensitive uh, to Islam and to how Muslims look at the world. This is very important because the young people in some cases are being swept up. You remember peer pressure, that peer pressure, and that is the influence of the society itself. Peer pressure can come from the friends or it can come now online. Uh, it can come right in your cell phone. Peer pressure is coming out of the movies. It is coming out of the television. It comes out of the styles in the dress. And so this can influence young people to want to test something. And unfortunately, many of these drugs, if you test it even once, you can become addicted, very seriously addicted to the drug. So we need to street-proof our youth. We need to let them know what's happening. And young women who are going out, they think that they're going to their friend's uh, house. There's a party there. They said, oh, it's okay. Even sometimes so-called Muslim parties. And, you know, and, they, and they are passing out drinks to the people. They have date rape drugs that they can literally put into the drink. And it, it, it cloaks itself. And the young uh, girl or the woman can pass out and not know what hit her or what happened to her until the following day. And so nice names do not make permissibility. And even good intentions do not make things that are haram acceptable. We are in very dangerous waters now because there's an ec economic recession on the horizon. But a good intention does not make something halal that is haram. And I can never forget being in one of the masjids. I had finished Jumwa. One of the brothers came up to me and said, Brother Abdullah, please, I need a fatwa. Uh, I just won the lottery. And I have 
$25,000 in my hand. What should I do? He said, uh, I'll give zakat. I'll pay two and a half percent. I'll give to the charities. What can I do? And I told him clearly, I cannot make permissible that which is impermissible. Haram is haram. I can't make it halal, even though you want to do something good. And so a person can't go on the lottery and say, um, I'm doing this in order to be able to pay zakat. So I will gamble or I will steal. And, and, and this is the classical story of Robin Hood. Robin Hood, the story from Europe of a person who was forced to steal and he would steal from the rich to give to the poor. And so Robin Hood may have been a victim of his circumstance, but a person who steals, who makes the intention to steal, cannot come after their, their intention and they're involved in it and say, okay, I'll make it good by giving to the poor. That is not the Islamic way of doing things. If we are forced to do certain acts that we don't normally do, there is a permissibility for this. If it is Dorora, if your life uh, is in danger, there is a permissibility. But good intentions do not make haram things acceptable. And you cannot give it an Islamic name. The reality is haram is haram and it is by nature harmful to us. Remember the principle. When things are made haram, it is not because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is being mean or, or just wants to punish us in this world. We're actually being protected from issues that could be harmful to our bodies, harmful to our lives, harmful to our future generations. And so it is a mercy, the halal uh, lifestyle sort of sets limits around us. And people today are finding out that Islamic lifestyle is actually a preferable lifestyle. People are now covering their faces. We're being more modest in their dress. They, they see the limits with people. Um, they're not touching each other the way they used to touch. And they're being more uh, considerate uh, of elderly people. So there's many aspects of the Islamic lifestyle that are actually coming to fruition today in the world uh, because of the will of Allah Azawajal onto the societies. These are some of our principles and we, not, we need to start to learn to think on our feet and to have our younger generation think on its feet as well. So I want to stop here at this point and open up the floor for any questions uh, that you may have. May have. I've, I've mentioned a number of things and uh, looked at a couple of issues. So the floor is open uh, for any questions uh, that you may have about these issues. I don't see any questions uh, here uh, at this point. Uh, did you see any uh, questions there, uh, Mahmoud? Sorry, no, Sheikh, I'm not. Okay, so we have to we have to remember 
um, the importance of usul, usul al fiqh, that is the basis of our understandings, that we need to be equipped with an Islamic understanding because what is happening in the world it is unprecedented. The world is going through tremendous changes with the technologies and with the names. And by having a strong foundation, it gives us an Islamic outlook on the world. And that is so important for our younger generation today to have that balanced outlook, to be able to think on their feet, to make decisions. Sometimes they don't have the ability to ask their parents. They don't have the ability to go you know, to a scholar and they have to make a decision. And this hits all of us and whatever level of society we are living in today, we have to remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us as the basis of everything being permissible. But within that permissibility, there are things that are haram. And we need to know these things to survive the crises that are coming at us in the 21st century. So I leave you with these thoughts. If you have questions, write them down for next week, inshallah. And I pray that Allah would bless your families and our society in these very difficult times that we are going through. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can help us to make the right decisions, to think on our feet for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and get the best in this life and the hereafter. So I leave you with these thoughts and I ask Allah to have mercy on me and you. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Kishak, you're live now. Inshallah, tafadhan, inshallah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa liya salihin. Wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluhu khatam al-anbiya'i wa mursaleen. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala abdika wa rasulika Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in wa ba'd. My beloved brothers and sisters, to our friends, our listeners, our viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We have been looking at practical guidelines for facing the crises that the world is experiencing in the 21st century. And no doubt, as time unfolds, things appear to be getting more confusing. It is confusing concerning vaccines. It is confusing in dealing with variants of COVID-19, of dealing with political issues connected to medical issues. And so it's important for Muslims to hold on to the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To, to hold on to clear guidance and have a type of practical way to approach uh, these issues. And in many cases, when we are able to refer back to our sources and then look at the issues, uh, things come very clear uh, immediately. And so in this light, we were looking at different aspects or different uh, groupings that are important to us in terms of facing our issues. Last week, we looked at women and the critical importance of empowering Muslim women and bringing justice back to the Ummah. Another important area 
which I believe may be one of the most critical areas of our emphasis in a practical way is the youth. And surprisingly enough, a United Nations study was done a few years ago. This is when we turned into the 21st century. And uh, they surveyed the world. They surveyed the countries, the ethnicities, the religions. And they came up with some startling information. That was that we are actually in a century of youth. The youth are making up the majority of people on the face of the planet Earth. And when they studied the issue of the youth, and these are not Muslims primarily who are doing the study, they found out that at least 45% of the world population is under 25 years old. When Muslim countries were surveyed, in many cases, 60% of our population were young people. Even here in Canada, in the GTA, in Toronto, if you were to take all of the Muslims, and we see this many, many times on Eid Day, if you were to take all the Muslims and put them on one field, then you would see the overwhelming majority are young people. And surprisingly enough, if you took the youth and then you took women and, and, and put that group together and separated the other group, you'd find that somewhere around maybe 25% are actually men, and especially men over 50 years old. But many of our programs and our Islamic centers are geared towards men over 50 years old. And so it's critical for us to look at this area to again get an overview of some of the challenges that our Ummah is facing and then try to look at some practical solutions. The problems facing the youth are numerous. One of the issues that we have identified, especially in February in Black History Month, is that the youth, especially in the West, are being directly influenced by racism and white supremacy. And that is the Eurocentric way of looking at things, where European-type people are generally the heroes, are ge generally the beautiful people, are generally the intelligent people. And this is not only in the movies of the past or the movies of the present. It is in cyberspace as well. And yes, it is not as bad as it was uh, 30 or 40 years ago when in the movies and the, and the programming you would hardly find a person of color. Still, the overwhelming majority of the heroes in the programming that our young people are watching are European people. They are people who do not look like them, who have a different background. And this forms part of the justification for racism. Because as we understood, racism is first an ideology. It's a belief based on myths, based on history, that one group is superior to another group. And so white supremacy permeates everything. You'll find it in clothing. You'll find it in our concept of beautiful 
and ugly. You'll find it in the educational system, in the justice system. And it is critical for us, as Muslims especially, to be able to deal with it. Because for a long time, we were not directly under the shade of white supremacy. But now we are living in the West. Our, our young people are growing up in the West. And many of our youth have don't have an understanding of their own country. Their life, for the most part, except for a summer vacation or a, a visiting group or something left within the family, is Western. It is not based on our countries. And so, and so therefore, the issue of white supremacy and racism, it is critical. The issue of atheism that we found striking the community in general is, is more specifically geared toward the young people. And it comes sometimes in a very subtle way where superheroes, mutant creatures, aliens are given tremendous powers. And in some cases, the superheroes are almost godlike. In some cases, like in the case of Thor, who was an ancient Viking god, it's actually projected uh, as a hero for the young generation. And many of our children are playing video games with Thor, not realizing that this was part of the shirk of the polytheism of the Northern European people. So atheism comes in that negates the creator. All of these powers are struggling against each other. The gods are fighting, the aliens are fighting, the mutant creatures are fighting human beings. Where's God? Not in the picture. And so without making a philosophical argument, they negate the concept of the creator. And so it is critical for us to be able to counteract this onslaught that is hitting our younger generation. Because the young people are the ones who will live in the future. The young people are the ones who are supposed to be taking the baton from the older generation and then taking the leadership. The loss of traditional values, which is striking the whole Muslim community, is especially severe amongst the youth. And I recall when the Raptors, uh, the Toronto Raptors, a basketball team, were playing for the championships of the National Basketball Association. And this is a sport that was never really uh, loved uh, in, in Canada itself. But the Raptors had joined the NBA and they were on the top. And um, some of my own uh, youth went out to a place called Jurassic Park. And this is a flat area, which is outside the stadium. And there were so many people inside of the stadium that thousands were gathering outside. And my own uh, grandchildren took the time suffering in the rain, you know, hiding underneath bridges, huddling in the cold in order to see who would win the basketball game. And I thought about Hajj. I thought about that spirit of the Hujjaj who are actually going through physical changes in the desert to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Their Hajj, so to speak, their pilgrimage was to Jurassic Park. And that's something to think about in terms of what motivates them and what direction they're going in. 
And this creates a type of peer pressure because the people who were huddled together in Jurassic Park, those who were leading them, the singers, the announcers, the players, have certain types of tattoos on their bodies, certain baseball caps, certain type of clothing. And so it is a pressure, it's a cultural pressure that impacts, this is peer pressure. And the worst form of it is when it actually uh, touches the belief system, our concept of God and our concept of our prophets and our important people. So peer pressure is another issue that needs to be studied. It needs to be understood and how we can counteract this uh, dangerous quality. Poverty is striking people, especially Canada has been blessed, but outside of Canada, and we even have it here to a certain extent, in the younger generation, there is unemployment. And surprisingly enough, there are even people in Toronto itself who are starving. Our food banks are being crowded by people, not just refugees, but sometimes people who are actually living here and maybe second or third generation. So another issue facing the younger generation is poverty. Of course, violence is on the rise throughout the world. And unfortunately, young people are caught up in this violence. And violence is being propagated through the media, even their video games. And so we see the rise of gangsterism. <clears throat> we see the rise of murder happening amongst young people like never before. So violence is an issue that this generation will have to deal with. Idle time and the lack of alternative recreation. And this idle time is really, really important to understand. Because one of the dangers of the urban lifestyle, especially for people who are not employed, is that they spend their time sitting around. And I remember vividly traveling, and I'll say the country, I was in Morocco. And in Morocco, I was traveling in Casablanca, and then in Marrakesh. And as I was moving along, I kept noticing the coffee house, and that there were dozens of young people sitting around drinking tea and drinking coffee for hours. And, and, and the question came in my mind, what are they doing with their time? What are they talking about? What are the challenges that they are facing? So idle time, and, and, and this is where the shaitan is able to come in in idle time when people are just sitting around and don't have direction in their life, don't have positive activities to keep them busy. Also, disease and the lack of health facilities. Here in Canada, we don't face disease, although the COVID now is something which is hitting the world, and we are faced with that. So we could put ourselves in the area of the virus and the disease, because there are some countries in Africa, for instance, who are not suffering from the COVID-19 uh, like we are suffering. So this is a challenge for the youth. If you grew up and you're coming into your teenage life and you have to wear a mask, you have to be locked down in your house, you can't go to school. This is an issue. And it may be plaguing us for the next few years. 
And above all, Islamophobia. And that is the illogical fear of Muslims and Islam, which is hitting the young people. Young people are very susceptible because when you're forming your personality, it's natural for a human being to want to go with the crowd, to be affected by the people around him or her. And so when there's a negative narrative constantly on the television, constantly in the books, constantly, when a negative narrative about Islam is there, it causes depression and low self-esteem. So these are just a few of the challenges uh, that young people are facing. And we need to have practical ways to come out of these very serious issues. I want to propose seven uh, solutions. The first, of course, and, and within our 10 points of survival uh, to revival, the emergence that we have been sharing on our YouTube page uh, and in our Facebook, um, set the, 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 from them, the, these points, the first is always taqwa Allah azawajal. And that is the consciousness of Allah. And it, it, it is critical for young people to develop this feeling or this quality of the presence of the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And also the love of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And that sometimes is difficult from a book. And so living Islam, being around people who fear Allah, who love the Prophet sallallahu when you're around people like that, it, 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 it affects you. And so it is important for older brothers, older sisters, for parents to spend time with the youth, quality time, going out, traveling, seeing the earth, being outside, for instance, in a camp and waking up and, and making salat, sitting at night and looking at the stars and starting to realize there's something bigger around us than the tube, than what we are looking at all the time. There is a vast universe. Just just to sit down with a young person and to look at the heavens and, and, and to look at the stars and, and to talk about it and, and to listen to the, to the creatures that are around us. This is the type of practical experiences that young people are so much in need of. And when we come out of this lockdown, as it appears, inshallah, uh, to be happening. We need to spend quality time to spend our wealth to get our youth re-engaged in their deen. The second point is an emphasis on relevant, useful education. And so studying Islam, having skills development training, not just to study, in other words, we don't just memorize the Qur'an to say, I am a hafiz. Because that's not the way of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. They would memorize short chapters, certain verses, and then implement it before they went on to the other ones. The Qur'an was a living revelation, not just something that you memorize like a parrot memorizes sounds, but it is a living thing and relevant. We need to be relevant. And when the Prophet ﷺ used to address his companions, especially on Jumu'ah, sometimes his eyes would get red. He would, his voice might raise 
somewhat, and he would talk as though there was an army in the mountain right in back of them. In other words, al reality, what is going on on the ground. So what we teach needs to be useful and needs to be relevant, and we need to look at what we are teaching. And the intention of the teaching is empowerment. So that if the Quran that we are memorizing becomes part of our way of looking at the world, if we understand the verses, if we ponder on the verses, if we apply the verses to the world we are living in, then the Quran can actually empower us because it's given us a solution. It's something they are always in the background to give us that information that we need in order to face up to these overwhelming challenges that are around us. So empowerment, education should lead to empowerment. And that needs to run through everything that we do with the youth, because the more the youth are empowered, is the more self-esteem they will develop. It, it is the more that their originality can, can come out because they have skills. And when the masjid, when the community, when the family is in need, <clears throat> then the young people can be part of the solution. The fourth point I wanted to um, emphasize is positive peer pressure. In the same way that the Jurassic Park outside of the Raptors basketball stadium where the pressure to wear certain clothes, to get a tattoo, to do certain things to your hair, to talk in a certain way, maybe to, to swear and to curse and even take intoxicants, that can be counted with activities where young people are involved while they are building together, struggling together, it develops a type of positive peer pressure where people would even struggle with each other to implement more of the sunnah than their brother or their sister. So a positive peer pressure uh, needs to be developed and that can come out of some specific activities uh, that we hope to talk about. Five, this is your alternative Islamic recreation and entertainment. This is where we need to empower our spoken word artists. We need to empower our physical education instructors, those who are involved in the basketball training, the uh, football, the track and field, the swimming, those who are involved in alternative Islamic education, alternative recreation, away from a young age for our young people to be able to go outside to the parks and still be a Muslim. And when I say alternative, it means that you're engaged in what you're engaged in. But as a Muslim, you don't have to succumb to the society when you're involved in these activities. And small uh, uh, initiatives that are taken are overwhelming. And you still hear about it. When Muslims make uh, the move, for instance, with swimming, and I can recall um, that we uh, would rent schools that had swimming pools. And we had some of the young sisters take swimming lessons. So they actually became lifeguards. And they wore their burkinis 
This is the Islamic uh, type of bathing clothing. So they, we opened up a, a woman's swimming session. And it was two or three times a week after Asa, uh, women could come out and swim in the pool. And it would be specifically for uh, women and Muslim women in particular. And uh, you wouldn't have to worry about men walking around and gazing at them in the pool. And surprisingly enough, I, I'll never forget, the sisters came and they said, when the non-Muslim women found out about it, they crowded into the pool as well. <laughs> until the pool became so crowded that all you could do was stand there in the pool. Why? Why would the non-Muslims want to have this? Because they also are assaulted by the wandering eyes of the men who are coming to the pool not to swim. So this is alternative Islamic recreation. So Islamic doesn't have to mean that you're saying something in Arabic or praying. Just the fact that they were in the pool and they were covering themselves up, right, and they were not exposing themselves to the public, that's Islamic. So this is what we mean. Something that is practical, something that is real. And we need to now really support this because there's an onslaught that is happening with the video games, an onslaught with the entertainment industry. And this time where our young people have been on lockdown, they are spending more time online than ever before. So therefore, when the lockdown eases up, when we have a chance to go out, you need to think about something to do. We think about it as families, and think about it as communities. What are we going to practically do when this is over? Let's start thinking. Number six, special attention to women and girls. And amongst the youth, it is critical because again, there tends to be more emphasis on the young males. But no, the young girls, this is critical. And we can see what is happening in the world with the International Women's Day and women, women marching in different parts of the planet. But we have to recognize that the rape, that the abuse, that the mistrust, the insults, it's not just hitting non-Muslim women, it is hitting our own women. And especially the way wearing the hijab, wearing, covering the face or whatever, Muslim women may choose to do, it is being insulted to the point where even in Europe, there are countries like Switzerland who are trying to ban it altogether. What does a woman covering herself up have to do with politics? What does it have to do with abuse? Especially when she decides to do that herself. So special attention needs to be paid in this area and empowerment and wealth needs to be thrown uh, in this direction. Also, that the youth are involved on all levels. And that means that we don't just have youth programs, or youth halakha, or youth entertainment, but that young people are heard on all levels of our society. And we can start in our families by listening to the young people and see what their opinion is about some of the big moves that we may be making as a family. What is their opinion? 
What is their opinion about how we are living, the things that we are doing? In the masjid, in the Islamic center, on our board of directors, our executive committees, especially, are they young people? There should be a young person on every executive committee. Because the young people are the majority. So if, if the majority of your people are from a certain group, it makes sense to listen to the group. I mean, if people, if you did a survey of an area and people want to buy Apple uh, uh, iPhones, okay, and you have to decide uh, what type, Sam, Samsung or Apple, if you know that they want the Apple, then that's what you'd sell. Similarly, our centers need to realize the overwhelming presence of young people in our community. That overwhelming presence needs to be in the masjid and not just outside in the streets. And so involvement on all different levels. And that means that the young people need to feel their ownership, that their word is actually listened to and they actually are involved in the leadership. So I want to look at a couple practical guides because this is what we're trying to uh, look at in a sense of, of being very practical with this. Now, in terms of the education, one of the great uh, lessons that I learned from one of the Mujeddins of West Africa, Shekhutman Denfodio, is that he was emphasizing to his followers and he was trying to build movement in them so that they could face the attacks that were coming from the evil kings so they could be involved in the revival of Islam, that he encouraged them not only to get into the Quran, to get into the Hadith, but Sirah, the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He encouraged them to do that. And also the stories of the Sahaba, the stories of great men and women from Islamic history. We can empower ourselves with this. These need to be our stories and not the stories that the young people might know about Batman and Superman and Ant-Man and all of the mutant creatures who are supposed to be walking around in society. And they can literally name them and give you their body size and talk about their life. What about companions of the Prophet ﷺ? What about great people in our history who are pretty close to us too? You don't have to go back 1400 years to find people who fall into this mold, this mold. And so this type of, um, these teachings bring the Quran and the Sunnah alive. It shows a living example of how they were implemented in the lives of human beings. Secondly, a great emphasis on skills development training. And by learning skills, you can see that, you know, even in the concept of the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scout Girl Guides, you know, and the Rangers and whatnot, it's, a lot of it is skills. So they're teaching them how to do nuts, how to survive, how to build a fire themselves. How many of our young people have these skills? Yes, they're very skilled at their iPhones and their video games, but put them outside in a field. Let them sleep overnight. Give them a tent. Let them survive and see what they know. This is where learning skills 
having that ability, it makes a more complete person and it builds self-esteem. Our young people need desperately to have self-esteem. That means they are not afraid. They believe in themselves. And that's so important today when so much is against us in terms of where we are going. And that should lead us to engagement with society. And that means that sometimes we need to go out with them into the malls, into the schools, in the society, and we engage as Muslims. In other words, we live our life. If it's time to pray, we can pray, you know, knowing how to choose what is halal from what is haram. Taking our, our knowledge needs to be something which equips us and, and gives us ability and, and frames the way that we think. And the, the, the recreation and this next point is, the, is, is that the action-oriented alternative recreation, action, things that, that, that makes the young people sweat, that, that, that you know, gives them vigor and, and strengthens their body. It, it's so important for us today, especially coming out of this lockdown where many of us have actually been fossilized. So we need to come out uh, with this practical uh, programs for our young people. And I want to look at education, the concept of education, because one of the subjects that we teach many times in one way or another is fiqh. And fiqh is our understanding, or you could say your jurisprudence. It is your halal and haram. It is what permissible, what is not permissible. It is how to approach um, prayer, how to approach food. It's your understanding of things. But many times it's taught as a dry subject where you are just learning um, facts and how to memorize facts and what they are. But there's a spirit of fiqh and it got even codified uh, Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, who many people may know as a great person of tasawwuf or the heart, he was actually a faqih. He was a master in fiqh. And his mustasfa uh, on usul al-fiqh is, is, is one of the most important books on the foundations of fiqh. So in other words, this is the foundations on how you think as a person, how you look at the world. And that's so important, especially today, where there are issues now facing us which are unprecedented. And so we will have to be making decisions weren't there before. And one of the issues or one of the principles of usul al-fiqh is that the basis of all things is permissibility. Asl al-ashya al-ibaha. And this is a very important point because for many young people who are growing up in Muslim households, when they start to learn about Islam, you get like a list of do's and don'ts, and it's mainly don't. And even people who are embracing Islam, many times a person becomes Muslim and says, okay, what should I do? And they say, don't do this, don't do that. They list about 25 don'ts, uh, and then they start with the do's. That's the opposite of the original concept of usul al-fiqh, 
the foundations of our understanding, that the basis of everything is permissibility, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first made everything permissible. Everything in this world is halal. Everything is not haram. I know that sometimes when you go into a supermarket, when you're, when you're going in society, it may appear like everything is haram. That we have to literally choose between so many things and okay, that's halal. One out of 20. But no, the basis in this world, Allah's creation, it's permissibility. So when we look at any issue, we start off with permissibility. And then we look at the issue to try to understand, is there something about that issue which is not permissible, which would take us away from things? So therefore, you look at, at these, these, these fruits, look at these vegetables here. And the basis of Allah's creation, it's halal. It is, it is permissible. But there may be certain vegetables that are poisonous. There may be certain foods. You have the animals of the world. There are certain animals that we don't eat. Okay, but the basis, the overwhelming majority of things is halal. And that is a positive way of looking at life. It's a positive way of looking at the world. And that's really important for our young people today. Because there's a narrative out there that Muslims are negative. And if you want to be truly free, then you, you leave religion, organize religion. And you just free yourself, free your mind. Do what you want to do. Okay? But the true Islamic principle, that the basis of all things is permissibility. Another issue that we want to look at tonight, and inshallah, uh, in, in, in the final classes, we'll be looking at other issues um, in usul al-fiqh, along with uh, some of the important areas. And that is that the prohibition of things is due to their impurity and their harmfulness. So therefore, when, some, when Allah made things haram, there's something which is impure about that. And that is Islamically impure. Something that is harmful to the body uh, about that. And one typical example is the pig. The pig is a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And pigs, if you uh, dissected a pig, you would find that the internal part of a pig resembles a, a human body uh, maybe more than any other animal. And so in many biology classes, they use pigs as a means of showing you what are the internal uh, parts of a human body. So the pig is a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The pig is not evil within itself. It wants to live. But there's something about the pig, its lifestyle, that you know it, it, it tends toward filthy things. And even some of them, you know, have pus glands, you know, to let out because they take in so much uh, impurities that they have to let it out. And I'll never forget in one of my new Muslim classes, there was a new Muslim who uh, from Poland. He was about to accept Islam and he raised his hand. He said, I have one question. And that is, uh, I love pork. And we've been raised eating the pig. Why is it wrong? 
And Poland is has one of the highest percentages of the eating of pork in the world. I mean, China is way up there. But Poland, pound for pound, if you see what they're actually eating at all of their meals, there's probably more pork than anywhere else in the world. And so I said to my friend, who was a good person at heart, I, I told him that, that the pig itself, if you watch the lifestyle of the pig, you will see it tends toward impurity. It tends toward uh, waste and things like that. That is how it lives. He said, no, 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 not our pigs. And he said to me, and these are his words, that our pigs in Poland are not like your pigs. Our pigs listen to symphony music and they eat grains. So they are healthy pigs. They are sophisticated pigs. And I said to him very clearly, being very practical, you can take a pig, put it in a tuxedo, take it to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, put a beautiful meal in front of the pig, he will leave that meal and go to the garbage. Because a pig is a pig. And you cannot take the pig out of the pig because that's the way the pig is created. So you can't make it halal. You cannot take a pig, even if it's a Polish one, and say, Bismillah, Allahu Akbar, and then it becomes halal. It's permissible because the pig is Nejas uh, Ain. The pig itself is unclean. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the pig and the pig eats garbage in many places. It may even be useful in certain societies in terms of eating the dead and cleaning up areas, but we're not supposed to eat it. And so the basis of everything is permissibility, but prohibition, it comes about from impurity and what is harmful to our life. These are important practical ways to look at the foundations of our understanding, our FIP. That's the kind of education that we need to give to our youth so they can make decisions in this very difficult time that we are living in today. So I want to leave you with these points and I want to open up the floor for any questions uh, that you may have concerning the youth and some of the issues that they are facing and some of the solutions uh, that we are looking at to come out of this very serious crisis that our young people are in. So I want to open up the floor uh, for any questions or comments uh, that anybody may have. The floor is open. Just as a reminder, inshallah, if, uh, for those of you who have any questions, go ahead and please type them up in the question and answer session. We're only taking questions from uh, the Zoom room, inshallah, those who are on the social media. Uh, you'd have to register for the class uh, to get into the discussion, inshallah. The registration is free, and you have access to all the previous classes and the, uh, the, the other ones as well, the ones that are coming up as well. That's islam.ca. So with this, if there are no questions right now, if you can think about it during the week, um, you can write it down 
and we can still deal with there's it. A, so there's a question, Sheikh. Um, sorry, Sheikh. There's a question here from, uh, what is the appropriate age for a child to begin understanding Quran? Um, of course, when a person is very young, they're just beginning to understand language. And, and so, but once the child reaches five, six years old, um, then, you know, when, when their thinking process starts to, 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 to form, uh, then, you know, they're able to uh, understand what is in the Quran. There's a, a system that has been developed for kindergarten grades and for, say, first grades for very young people. And, and that is to teach principles uh, through pictures and through objects and through activities. And so similarly, there are certain Quranic principles that could be taught through activities and through drawings um, and through uh, ways of communication that don't require um, a lot of reading and writing you know, abilities that come on later. So even from an early age, principles of the Quran, of Islam, can be taught to the youth. But it's, it's not the principle, it's how you apply the principle. So, so, so try to develop this. Things like honesty, being honest, helping uh, each other, you know, sharing things. You can teach youth how to share, how to, to give to other people, give it to them, show them how to share through activities. And um, this, uh, this is a skill uh, and it's being taught to, to young people in the kindergarten level. And we can also apply this uh, to our Islamic teachings. And it's later on, once they're at six, seven years old and they're getting older now and they, they've been able to understand more things, that, that we can begin to break it down. So as they move in stages, the teaching will become more complex. There, there are no more questions here. Okay, so with this, we will end um, this session, and inshallah, we will continue on with our practical guide, trying to get more principles to, to help our society to be able to maneuver uh, in this very confusing world. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the light, give us the guidance, and help us to make the right decisions uh, in this time of crisis. I leave you with these thoughts, and I ask Allah to have mercy on me and you. وآخر الدعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله تعالى على سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه وبارك وسلم سبحان ربك رب العزة أما يصفون وسلام الله مسلم والحمد لله رب العالمين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته